0: All right. Well, thank you guys again for for being here today. Uh, If you have a Bible, we are going to be, Lord willing, finishing the book of Daniel today. So Daniel chapter twelve, and we'll also be uh, going back a little bit to the end of Daniel chapter eleven to kind of set the stage for what's going on in chapter twelve. But Daniel chapter twelve, Greg, could you uh, open us in prayer, and then we will uh, we will read through. uh, portion of the passage and we'll begin to talk a little bit about it. Yeah.
1: Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for Your grace. We are thankful for the hope of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, we're thankful for the forgiveness of our sins. We're thankful for the hope of eternal life. We're thankful for the righteousness that You've given us that is not a righteousness that we've earned in any way, but one that is freely given. Um, on account of another. Um, And Lord, I pray that, Lord, as we study Daniel 12 and we finish up, I pray that our hope in Christ would only be made stronger. Uh, Lord, there's so much here that that fuels that hope, and I pray that you'll help us up here to be very clear um, and faithful to the text, and may our hearts be nourished and encouraged to persevere, to endure, to... Stay faithful to you no matter what comes, God, because we know the end will come uh, when we will be raised to everlasting life to see our Savior face to face. And I pray that that hope and that reality would be strengthened in our hearts uh, through our time together this morning. So be with us in a special way. Grant your Holy Spirit to uh, give illumination uh, to us, Lord, that we better understand your word and how it applies to us. Uh, Lord, that we might be more like Jesus and better live for Him. And we ask this in His name. Amen.
0: Amen. Well, before we read the passage, um, just a a word kind of as we close the book of Daniel about uh, eschatology, right, the word for end times, uh, issues of the end times. Uh, When when it comes to Christians and unity over these kinds of issues, it is always the essential things that are taught in eschatology that we must agree on, right? So, To be a Christian is to believe that Jesus rose bodily, that He is at the right hand of the Father, that He will come one day physically, visibly, literally to judge the living and the dead, that those who have trusted Him and have borne fruit and evidence of their faith in Christ, they will be raised to everlasting life. And those who have not obeyed the gospel, have not turned to Christ, have not confessed their sin, they will be raised to everlasting judgment. Those are things that all Christians everywhere must agree on. Those are non-negotiables. When it comes to the details of some of these parts of Daniel, listen, I mean, Alistair Begg kind of made a joke when he was preaching, he said, I reserve the right to change my opinion about my sermon today, later tonight. (laughs) Because he said, some of the details are difficult, and so… if, we, if, if, we, if if judgment day comes and the Lord says that every single word we taught on Daniel was exactly correct, I will be the most surprised person of all, okay? Because I, I don't know that we've got every single detail perfectly figured out, but we're trying our best to do what we can with the details. And um, so on the main things, we must be unified. But on some of these really debatable matters, we shouldn't divide over these things. We should try our best to come up to it with an understanding of what they mean, pray for help, uh, compare them with other Scripture, uh, work on it. I mean, for years, you, you slowly… Uh, it's kind of like… Uh, I don't know. It's, it's something that over time, you, you grow over, your, over time in your ability to see these issues a little bit more clearly. Each year, you hope you see it a little bit more clearly as time goes on, but… Um, as we come to a close here, uh, Papa Fred, could you, could you start reading for us in chapter 11, verse 36, and can you read all the way to twelve four? So we're going to do the Antichrist at the end of 11, 11 36, 36 12, all the way to 12-4. Okay.
2: And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be none. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become the ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Chapter 12, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered everyone whose name shall be written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shall shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge
0: shall increase. Thank you, The word of the Lord. Yes. Greg, could you kind of set us back up and remind us what's going on as we segue into chapter 12?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, one of the things, you've heard me mention this so many times, and I'm probably going to keep mentioning it, and I hope you don't get tired of me mentioning it, is the chapter and verse divisions that we have in our Bible were not original to the Bible. They were added much later. And so, when we come into Daniel 12, we don't want to somehow forget that chapter 11 was meant to flow directly into chapter 12. There was no chapter 12 and then verse 1. It was, you've got the end of what we have, chapter 11, flowing directly. It's like there's no break in the thought here, okay? And so we finished last week, last time, talking about the Antichrist. You know, chapter 11 was talking about Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, and then in verse 36, it shifted. Um, prophetic literature does that. It shifted from a specific human being at a specific point in time, Antiochus, to someone else, someone towards the end. Some end times opponent, some end times figure who's going to have all kinds of powers, going to, to rule in ways we haven't seen before, um, come against the people of God, um, and various things like that. Um, and so we were talking about this end time figure, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, as Second Thessalonians talks about. And so we need to keep that in mind because chapter 12 is in the same vein of thought, it's in the same flow of thought as what we finished with last time. So what we talked about, this, this, this Antichrist figure, um, you know, he's in the glorious land, he's got his palatial tents, he's conquering all those around him. And then we pick up at that time, at what time? The same time that we just were talking about at the end of chapter 11. When this Antichrist, this end times opponent of God's people, at that time is when this Prince Michael arises who has charge over God's people. Um, and so again, same time period. Antichrist and what we're looking at today, um, same, same time period. There's overlap. They're parallel. Don't, don't think chapter 11 ends and then a new time frame after that, no, they're running together. They're they're talking about the same things, and so that being said, in that time of tribulation, this this time of of um, as as it says, a time of trouble such as never been since the there was a nation until that time. You know, during this time of trouble, the antichrist is present. He's doing his thing. What is what is Daniel? What is revealed to Daniel? It says at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Now, we've encountered Michael before, uh, back in, was it chapter eight, I think, um, when Daniel, or is it chapter, no, chapter 10, I think. One of those chapters. Um, I'm getting them mixed up in my head. But when, the, when Daniel is talking to, the, to Gabriel or the messenger and he says, Michael had to come and help me. Well, who's Michael? We only encounter him a few times in scripture, but he seems to be a pretty significant angelic figure. He's called in Revelation chapter 12, uh, the archangel is like he's the general of heaven's armies. He's talked about, I think it's in the book of Jude, talking about the dispute over you know, the devil and Michael over the body of Moses. And Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. And that's it. I mean, we don't have a lot of information um, on this, this figure, but we do know, because uh, you know Hebrews talks about angels are ministering spirits sent to help the people of God. Um, we do know that this, this angelic being, Michael, <clears throat> he is a defender of God's people. He's a, he watches over God's people. Um, he's, he's called the prince, the great prince who has charge of God's people. So when we are going through hard times, we need to understand in some way that's beyond us, there are angels at work, angels fighting, angels taking action on our behalf. I mean, that's pretty good news. I mean, we, we think about, you know, sometimes we feel like <clears throat> just flesh and blood just us and what we can deal with and what we can see. Paul talks about in Ephesians, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these angelic powers in the heavenly places. We know one of them at the very least, Michael, who's a very powerful being who leads the armies of heaven. He's fighting on our behalf. Again, we don't know exactly what that looks like, but we do know in the unseen realm, there are forces not just arrayed against us, there are forces arrayed for us fighting on our behalf.
0: Oh, that's
2: helpful. Well, I think this is what Greg just uh, indicated is, is really, really significant right now because Michael steps on the scene again uh, and it says, the great prince who has charge of your people, uh, whatever that means. I mean, uh, there's a conflict going on. We're already introduced to the conflict uh, between the princes and the, the princess of Persia and the prince of Greece. And, and this seems to be in the heavenly realm. And, and, and now this chaos that we see again in chapter 11, the kings of the north and the kings of the south, I lose track. <laughs> I had to get a compass out. Okay, north is up, up this way and, and south down here. And, and actually, uh, historically, these, this, this chapter 11 flows exactly like it happened. There is a big break after uh, chapter, after verse 35, uh, which is the end of the Antichrist, I mean, end of Antiochus IV, and then a break, big break, uh, before the end of the time, which the Antichrist has introduced. But with all this conflict, it's nice to know that we know that God's in charge, but he's got lieutenants, he's got archangels out there fighting for us and and, and and conducting warfare in the heavenly places. Gosh, I wouldn't know where to begin to do that except to pray like perhaps Daniel did. But beyond that, I, I, I don't think I'm equipped except we have the sword, the sword of the spirit. So uh, that's the good news.
0: That's good. It's kind of like if you've ever been to a play and, uh, you know, we have this curtain behind us right here. (laughs) The curtain, you know, goes down between scenes oftentimes, and then you might hear some moving around behind the curtain, but you don't see anything, and uh, then the curtain goes back up and you've got a whole new set. Like, everything's been changed around. There's a new, you know, there's a building over here, and there's new props over here, and everything's been moved around. Well, all that happened while we couldn't see. It was behind the curtain, right? But then the curtain comes up, and what's happened? Well, imagine if in the middle of the set change, someone accidentally pressed the curtain button, and the curtain starts going up, and all the people dressed in black who are moving everything around, oh no, you know, we're being seen now. But it's like in the angelic world, there is this enormous amount of… there's an enormous amount of… different things that are going on that we're just completely blind to. The curtain is down for us 99.99999% of the time of history. We don't know what the demons and angels are doing behind that curtain to kind of organize and orchestrate things in the world as they are. We just see the world, the curtain comes up, we see the world as it is. There's governments fighting against each other, there's government oppression, there's evil going on, there's injustice, there's sometimes justice, there's all kinds of things happening, but we don't often get a glimpse behind that curtain of who's organizing this play. And of course, God is the ultimately sovereign one, even over Satan, but it's as though there's moments in Daniel where God lifts the curtain up and He, he shows us behind the scenes what's going on. Uh, there's a prince of Persia. There's Michael. There's Gabriel. There's this battle going on and uh, it takes weeks for them to get through certain battles and things like that. So it, it is wonderful, even though we don't know all there is to know, to get these little glimpses of the, of the spiritual and supernatural uh, realm, which is right behind uh, the scenes. Uh, Greg, you want to take us into chapter 12 here?
1: Yeah. Okay, and so he's talking about And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. And that, again, is what was started with this end times figure, this Antichrist in chapter 11, what we see going on here in in chapter 12. You know, remember back in chapter 9, we we talked about the 70 weeks. And it was kind of like that 70th week, we got the first three and a half years, and the second three and a half years aren't really talked about much um, after that. Um, And so we're going to draw more on that here down at the bottom, I think, but just keep in mind, because we've already made the argument that that last three and a half years is indicative of the entire period between the first and second coming of Christ, this time of of trouble, and it will have an intensification at the end. It's like the, the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world, even though Antichrist hasn't come yet. Um, the, the the man of lawlessness, the, the spirit of lawlessness is already at work, even though the, the man who embodies that is not here yet. And so when we think about this time of trouble, that marks all of church history. So when we see that there will be a time of trouble, um, that, that's, we see that at moments throughout church history, the intensification, but then it stops. The intensification, and then it stops. There's going to come a time when the only way it's stopped is by God himself intervening through the second coming of, Of the Lord Jesus. That's why verse 45 it says this individual will come to his end with none to help him. But look at what follows that, okay? So tribulation, uh, difficulty, but at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And we've seen that book, it's talked about in Revelation, uh, the book of life of the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Uh, what is your security in the midst of all the difficulties, the trials, the struggles, the hard times that we go through? Our hope in that is the fact that God has marked us out. If you're a believer, you have been marked out as one belonging to him. Your name's written in a book. And God says, if your name is in that book, Yes, you may go through this, but you will be delivered. And how does that deliverance ultimately, how is it ultimately expressed? Look at verse two, it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is one of the clearest pictures in the Old Testament of a future final resurrection of our physical bodies, either to eternal life, everlasting life, or to eternal judgment, and punishment forever away from God. And so, because remember, we the New Testament clearly talks about our blessed hope. What do we long for? The appearing of our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we long for more than anything else is to see him face to face. And the only way we can see him face to face in a new body is if these bodies are resurrected. And that's what Daniel here is pointing us to, this final end times resurrection when God's people will be raised to everlasting life, eternal life. It's kind of, uh, Fred might have a few more things to say on it, but it's, it's. I think you said, the only place in the Old Testament where that yes, phrase is used. So. Um, so that's significant. I mean, that's absolutely huge that it is worded in this way. So there will be some, those whose names are written in the book, who will be raised to everlasting life. There will be some whose names are not in the book who will be raised to shame and everlasting contempt. Any thoughts yeah, before no, we Yeah, that's on? a
0: great point. So... <laughs> When you get into sort uh, of… people who are more skeptical of the Bible will often say things like, the Old Testament doesn't really teach clearly about the afterlife, it doesn't teach resurrection, these kinds of objections. And when I was a young Christian, I didn't really… I didn't know the Bible well enough to know how to respond to that kind of objection, so I was thrown off by it. I thought, okay, I know the New Testament talks about resurrection, where is it in the Old Testament? I mean, it certainly is is less frequently and less clearly talked about. Now, let, let me just say first of all this. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, it actually says in the New Testament that when Jesus came, He brought life and immortality, that would be eternal life, He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In other words, uh, one old, uh, B.B. Warfield, I believe, an old scholar said that the Old Testament is like a room richly furnished but dimly lit. In other words, progressive revelation. As time goes on through the Bible, through the Old Testament into the New Testament, The theology doesn't change. The doctrine doesn't change. The furniture stays the same. The Trinity is there from Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image. But it's in a shadow form. It wasn't as clear in Genesis 1 as it was in John 1. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So what happens is these doctrines around us of eternal life, resurrection, they are there from the beginning, but they're in seed form. It's like the the dimmer switch is way down, and you can sometimes barely see some of these things. But as you move into the New Testament and the gospel, the lights turn up. Jesus brought life and immortality too light through the gospel. That's 2 Timothy chapter 1. So, uh, clearly the Bible isn't hiding the fact that these things get clearer the further you go. But that does not mean they're not there in the Old Testament. Uh, j- just as an example, you know, Jesus says, we'll get to this in Matthew probably a long time from now, a year and a half. Uh, in Matthew, <laughs> G- G- the last week of his life, when the Pharisees are coming up to him and testing him with hard questions, they, you know, the Sadducees are making fun of the resurrection. A woman married a man and he died. And she married another man. He died. She married seven men. They all died. I heard someone say, at some point, we got to realize this lady has got to be poisoning her husbands because (laughs) she's lost seven husbands in a row. That's not a good record there. The eighth guy is going, I don't don't think this is a good idea. But um, so all seven of her husbands died one after another. And then the Sadducees are making fun of resurrection. They're going, hey, Jesus, in the resurrection, who is she going to be married to? Is she gonna be a polygamist in heaven? I thought you didn't believe in that. Well, is she gonna have seven husbands? And Jesus says, I love this. Jesus goes, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, which is just a huge insult to the theological giants of his day. At least they thought they were. And Jesus responds by saying, Okay, you Sadducees, you at least believe the first five books of the Bible, right? Okay, I'm adding words. This is the, the implied thing he's saying. You, you believe in the Torah, right? The first five books? Okay, let's go to the Torah. In fact, let's go to Exodus. God says, I am the God of Abraham. Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, I used to be their God. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That implies that they are still alive in some form, doesn't it? Well, He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So, Jesus is showing that even in shadow form at the burning bush, God is affirming that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive, their souls in heaven. I am currently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, Jesus sees hints of resurrection there, and then, of course, He says, we neither marry nor are given in marriage in the resurrection, but we will be like the angels in the sense that they're not married, and clearly the true marriage is going to be to Christ, the bridegroom and the bride. But um, the Old Testament does teach. You don't have to turn there. Psalm 1611. Uh, it, well, th- th- Let me start just before that. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption, the decomposition of the body. You make known to me the path of life, In your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore." That sounds like resurrection and afterlife, which is what the New Testament says that means. Psalm 17, the very next Psalm, uh, David says, the last verse, "'As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness.'" I don't think David means, when I wake up on Tuesday morning. I think he means when I die and I wake up in the resurrection. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When are we going to see God's face? When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David's talking about resurrection. He's saying one day I'm going to die. I'm going to be asleep. I'm going to come back to life. My body will come back to life. I'm going to meet the Lord face to face, and uh, and I will be satisfied with His likeness. Let me give you uh, another one here. Can you turn with me to Isaiah 25? I read these a few months ago at church, but... Isaiah 25 and 26 have two, I would say, no less clear passages on resurrection as Daniel. Uh, they're, they're at least as strong as that. Isaiah 25, look at verse uh, 6. On this mountain, says Isaiah 25, 6, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations." What is that veil? He will swallow up death Death. forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be on that day, declares, uh, be on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Turn to the next chapter, 26. And th- I don't know a clearer statement, I mean, other than Daniel. This is as clear as you get on resurrection. 26, verse 19. I mean, how much more clearly can you say it? Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy, for your due is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So, the Old Testament doesn't teach resurrection? I mean, my goodness, it's, it's all, I mean, Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, and after my flesh is destroyed, in my flesh I will see God, in my body I will see God. I mean, There are all kinds of texts that seem to hint at this idea of resurrection, but this is not even a hint. The, the earth will give birth to the dead. There will be a resurrection of all God's people. But Daniel is the first book, I think, to mention the resurrection of the unrighteous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that is correct, in the Old Testament. So, uh, Papa, can you jump in here?
2: Sure. I, I just, I noted in three, I was looking at your um, 26, 19, for your do is, uh, is a due of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And uh, verse 3 says, uh, and twelve, three says, for those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It seems to be a parallel there. My, my uh, granddaughter said this, that's why the, Saddu- the Sadducees are sad, you see. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe the
2: resurrection. <laughs> that's
0: a good one. I love that. Um, but, go ahead, Bob. No. It, it's, you know, that's
2: our, that's our goal in life. I mean, it's like, like Mark mentioned, it, it, there is a, there's a veil, there's a shadow somewhat in the, in the OT. But if you look, it's there. Uh, our goal is not death, but the resurrection, and that's what we look forward to in the transformation that takes place. Uh, you know, our goal is the is the glorification that comes with the last day. You know, I, I, I remember from Romans eight sixteen, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. And that's resurrection. To be glorified with Him, so we've got to suffer, and we're learning that in Daniel clearly. But next comes glorification and resurrection. And
0: no, that's 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 exactly right. And it's interesting that these stories earlier in Daniel of first we have the fiery furnace rescue, and we have the lions den rescue. Do you see, those are in Daniel, not as God saying that if you ever face physical threat, God will always supernaturally, miraculously deliver you from martyrdom. That is not what Daniel is promising. Those two miracles, the fiery furnace and the lion's den, are given for all the people of God as a guarantee that if God could save them miraculously from death when it was a guarantee for both of those individuals there, well, for the three friends and for Daniel, if God could save them miraculously from death in a furnace and in a lion's den, He can actually save us from death even after we have died. That's the point. Those stories are there as, as almost parables. They're, they're true, historical stories, but they're almost as illustrations for how God can conquer death. And they're meant to give us assurance that although we will likely not have a miraculous deliverance if we were under some kind of threat, we might, but probably not. But even if we were uh, to die, uh, we know that the Lord will ultimately bring us through that and, and, and we will triumph at, at, on the last day.
1: I had a thought, something listening to you say that. I hadn't quite put it together this way before. You know, the Bible talks about, you know, the vindication of God's people at the end because… There will be an intensification of persecution. I mean, we see that even in the attitudes of non-believers today. You know, mocking Christians, making fun of Christians, like treating us almost as like we're subhuman for what we believe at times. On that day of vindication, when Jesus comes back and we're resurrected, um, you know, we we think about how Nebuchadnezzar responded, how Darius responded when. These men who should have died somehow miraculously, miraculously survived. Those who hate the church, those who oppose the church, and even took joy in the death of Christians, and there will be that. It, it's already happened. It's going to happen even more. What a moment of vindication and victory when they come back to life. I mean, I'd never thought of that before. I mean, you think, of, we, we get like goosebumps and chills thinking about Daniel surviving the lion's den. Oh, wow, they came out from the, you know, the fiery furnace, not even a smell of smoke or anything like that. How much more of a moment of vindication for our faith when we come back to life and those who took our lives see us and they realize death couldn't keep us from what God wanted for us. Like that, that is just amazing to think about. Like like I said, I hadn't, hadn't quite thought of it that way until you were, you were talking about it. But it, it is going to be unspeakably great mm. when we're resurrected. The joy, the vindication in our own hearts. I mean, we struggle with doubt. I mean, I know we all do at times, sometimes stronger, sometimes less. But man, when it happens, doubt is gone. I mean, I can't even imagine what that's going to feel like to be made whole in the presence of Jesus, and know there will be no more doubts forever again. No mm-hmm. more doubts. Um, anyway, that's, that's a whole other whole well, no, sermon well, me, right there, let man. Let me pick
0: up with what you're saying. Some of you may have read, uh, and, and C.S. Lewis always have to caveat, he's not a perfect theologian, he's got some <laughs> glaring problems, but he's, but a, he's great writer, a great writer, a great writer. And in his book or his essay, The Weight of Glory, oh, God. I don't know how many of y'all have read that before. If, I'm sure it's free online. If you, if you Google Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis, he's got a book by that title. It's the opening essay it's I don't know, it's, a, it's a long it's a sermon it's one of his sermons it's a long uh chapter <laughs> but my goodness, it is so rich. the weight of glory is about and this, this this may sound heretical this is a biblical doctrine that not only do we glorify God now hang on here don't this may sound like heresy, but God in a sense glorifies us now th- this is the actual word in Romans eight those whom he justified he also glorify. glorified so God is going to glorify us that may sound Weird. That that sounds… it sounds strange to me, but you get a glimpse of it right here. Look at… look at verse 2 again of Daniel 12. So, it talks about those whose names are written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise, that's the resurrected believer, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever… That is the doctrine of the glorification of the believer. That God will one day glorify us. We will shine like the stars. So this is not literal. It's not as though you're literally going to be as bright as the sun, and so everyone has to wear their sunglasses when they're around Papa Fred because he's just so glorious. <laughs> that that, 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 that is not what we're talking about here. But C.S. Lewis said that every mortal that you meet on the street, everybody you run into on the street that you bump into, even someone who seems like a, you know, a, an impoverished person who's a believer and, it, and maybe a rich person who's an unbeliever, whatever, everybody you've ever met, he said, he says, you've never actually met a mere mortal. You haven't. He said, you've either bumped into people who one day will be so glorious in the presence of Jesus that if you just saw them on their own, you would be tempted to bow down and worship them, the believer, glorified. And if you saw the other people who are not believers, you would be absolutely horrified and disgust at their state in eternity. But he said, there is no mere mortal. You, you never just bumped into a person on the road. The person who cuts you off on the way here isn't just a person driving their car. That's either an eternal glory or an eternal horror, depending on how they respond to Christ. And so, the, the idea that God is going to glorify His people, not in an idolatrous way, but in a way that goes back to God's glory, that He took Us out of the dirt, sinful creatures that He died in our place, that He raised us, and now He's going to resurrect us and glorify us is astonishing grace that reflects God's glory. It makes God look all the more glorious that He can take scraps of dirt like me and you who are full of sin, purify us, clean us, resurrect us, and then make us shine like stars in the heavens. He's going to make us glorious one day. So I highly recommend a night this week, Go online, find The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. It, it, it is just a moving, stirring uh, thought about how God will glorify His people. I'll second that. It's a good, great essay. It is a great essay. Okay, right, so, <laughs> yeah, let, so the, the, the first point here, and we're going to move quickly, the first point here is really just after the time of trouble is going to be the, re, the glorious resurrection. There's going to be trouble now, resurrection later. And so we, we know that no matter how hard it gets here and now, that the end of the day, resurrection is coming. Now we're moving to the second point here, which is verses really five through seven. This is the idea of we should persevere through trials. So Greg, can you read five to seven? Yeah.
1: It says, "'Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, "'How long shall it be till the end of these wonders?' And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished.
0: And Greg, I I would love for you to jump in here, but let me say one thing. The, The phrase a time, times, and half a time is a hotly debated and contested period, which sounds like a three-and-a-half-year period, time, times and a half-time, could be year, uh, one year, two years, and a half a year, could be how you think about that. Um, I know it's hotly contested, so let me give a little, little word about next Sunday we do not have Sunday school. The Sunday after that, which I think is June 12th, we will, we will do an overview of the book of Revelation. I'm excited about this. Uh, we're going to kind of go, not, we're not trying to be contrarian, but we're going to go against the more popular Southern Baptist approach to Revelation in a pretty strong way. So just prepare for that. <laughs> if you've grown up with a certain view on Revelation, we're going to be giving a, maybe a different view than is normally. it's not the left-behind view, it's a very different view from the left-behind view that we'll be presenting. But as we do, we're going to try to make an argument, I hope you find it at least interesting, maybe compelling, that this phrase, time, times, and half a time, or 42 months, or 1,260 days, or 1,290 days, all the different three-and-a-half-year-ish periods of time. We're going to argue in Revelation that this refers to the entire period between Christ's ascension and His return. And that may sound very strange. We're going to try to make a case for that, a symbolic reading of this text in Revelation because that phrase is used in Revelation 11, 12, and 13. And I think a strong case, I mean, a surprisingly strong case can be made to argue that the three and a half year period in Revelation is, I think, clearly, it starts at the the ascension of Jesus in in Revelation 12, and I believe it goes until the final return of Christ. And if if you can, that's the hardest part of the argument. Like, in other words, that's the biggest hump in the argument, like, to get over that. If you can buy into that idea, it it really does change how you read Daniel and how you read Revelation. If you can buy into the three and a half year period being the entire period of tribulation from Christ's ascension to his return— which I think Revelation 12 teaches, it really does begin to change how you read some of these apocalyptic books. So Greg, can you pick up on that thought?
1: Yeah, um, so thinking of, <clears throat> excuse me, the three and a half days, or three and a half years, uh, time, times, and half a times. Um, you know, we, we've looked at this before. Go back to chapter seven, verse 25, okay? Back to chapter seven, verse 25. We're talking about, again, this, this antichrist, this fourth beast, um, who embodied in Rome, but beyond Rome yeah. in, in so many ways, listen to what it says in verse 25. It says, He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they, the saints, shall be given into his hand for a time, mm-hmm. times, and half a time. Hmm. Three and a half years. Again, Daniel 9. We got the first three and a half years. It didn't really talk about the second half of that 70th seven, which is three and a half years. I think what we get here and what we saw in chapter seven is that final three and a half years, that final half of the 70th week. Um, and so <coughs> thinking on that, beginning the first coming of Christ to the second coming, we've already said this, we're repeating a little bit. Uh, is, a, is the three and a half years is indicative of the entire period of that. Now, this is gonna be tough. We've talked about this. It says that this antichrist, this end times opponent is going to wear out the saints of the most high. Look at the, the phrase, um, verse seven. It says, for a time, times and half a time and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished, a shattering of the power of the holy people, wearing the saints out. I want you to hold your place here. Turn to Revelation chapter eleven. We got to go there real quick. I want you to see this connection drawn on a little bit of what Mark was saying. Uh, there's a lot more that we could say. We know about these two witnesses. One of the things we'll argue. I think it's indicative of the witness of the church throughout the church age, um, not just two literal individuals. At a certain point, this is you know two or three witnesses, or what give credence to. Um, to the validity of an argument in court. So there's two witnesses here. Uh, there were two faithful churches at the beginning of Revelation, the only two of them that, that actually didn't receive any rebuke from Jesus. So we've got the, the faithful remnant of the people of God proclaiming the Word of God. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, uh, 1 through, um, through 3. Says, and I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months—that's three and a half years—and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, uh, and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred sixty days, clothed in sackcloth, indicative of the people of God who were not at home in this world. Um, Our home is what's to come, and then look at verse seven. This is key. And keeping Daniel in mind, I think, I think this will be clear. It says, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. He will wear out the saints of the most high. The, the power of the holy people will be shattered. God has a, a time frame for his people to preach his truth to the world. And when that time frame is ended, then we will be given over to the power of the beast, the power of the Antichrist at the end. Um, he will wear out the saints. He will shatter their power, will be put to death. And I think that's what Daniel is, is hinting at here with the continued repetition of this time, times, and half a times. Look at verse 11. Um, From that time, the regular burnt offering, when that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days, a little more. And then verse 12, blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335. Why are we adding to the three and a half years? Here's a thought and then I'll I'll turn it over to you guys. Um, I wrote this down in my, the text that I was blowing up their, um, their thing this morning. Um, basically, it's this. That end times, especially at the, the very end, the intensification, will last longer than God's people want it to, but it will be far less lengthy than the Antichrist plans for it to be. Meaning... If we just hold on, it will come to an end. That's why blessed is he who who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days, meaning the tribulation is gonna be hard and it might go on longer than, than it seems like it should, but there is an end. The Antichrist will not be allowed to ultimately prevail. He will be brought to an end. And I think this plays into, it's the foundation for the whole biblical teaching of the perseverance of the saints. You know, Jesus, Matthew 24 says, he who perseveres or endures to the end will be saved. Even if that end is a little bit further off than we thought, it, it, it will come. It will come. Jesus says in the same chapter that that time will be cut short for the sake of the elect, God's people, Um, Otherwise, no one would be saved. He knows our limit. It may go further than we would want it to go, but he knows knows what we can handle. He knows that there's gonna be an end point when he breaks into history again and brings it all to an end.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm going to give like a, almost a silly illustration for something really serious, but it's almost like if you have a physical trainer, like I know Josh Chronic and others around here can do that kind of stuff. If Josh Chronic, you know, is, he's been doing this for a while, he knows what he's doing, he, he knows, he, <laughs> sorry, this is such a silly illustration, but like if, if Josh Chronic is training you, I, I, that's a scary thought in my mind, That's that, that makes me scared. But uh, if he's doing that, he, as a good trainer, he knows how to push you right to where your limits actually are. Now, it may be further than you want to go, but he'll take you right up and you're like, okay, this could actually injure me. He's like, no, 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 it's going to be good. And he takes you right to the point where you're like, it, it may be painful, but it's going to be for your good at the end of the day. It's not going to push you too far. It's not going to actually break you. And it's interesting, First John uh, mentions, and I've said this before, that the spirit of the Antichrist that you've heard is coming is now in the world already. So when it says that the time of the Antichrist lasts for this this long period of time in one sense, it's because his spirit is already at work now. And the actual man has not appeared yet, at least as far as we know, but his spirit has been at work since the first century. That's why we're saying between the first and second coming of Christ, the Antichrist is at work. Even if the man of lawlessness is not actually here yet, his spirit is here. His spirit is the demonic, satanic spirit. And it it was at work in 90 AD when John wrote 1 John. It was at work in the 50s AD when Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians and said, the man of lawlessness, his spirit is already here now. He, he says, the, the lawlessness is already happening now. So you have multiple people in the New Testament saying… Th- this was a mystery that became more clearly revealed in the New Testament. Antichrist shows up when Jesus dies and rises. Not his physical form, but his spirit takes place right when the church is born. And the Antichrist spirit has been persecuting and deceiving and teaching error in the church ever since the first century. He was at work in the 50s AD. He was at work when First John wrote in the 90s AD. He's been at work the entire time of the medieval church. He's been at work since the Reformation era. He's at work right now with false teaching and anti-Christian teaching and anti-Christ teaching. All heretical doctrine is ultimately coming from the spirit of the Antichrist. So the Antichrist is already doing his thing now, even if the man himself is not even born, uh, because the spirit is at work even, even at this time. So we need to be ready for the persecution and deception that he's going to produce uh, no matter what. We're almost out of time, Papa. Well,
2: Jesus is the one that cuts the time short. He, he says, you know, uh, when this is when er, all seems lost and hopeless and, and we're ready to give in, throw in the towel. Jesus intervenes and he, he comes back and it's finished mm. for, forever. So that's that's the encouragement thing. You, you say, well, I'm not looking forward to, you know, Daniel started out by praying for a return after 70 years. Little did he bargain for uh, the, the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but this is the hope, though, that, that, that Jesus will intervene. There is this uh, heavenly contest going on between the, uh, the powers, the angelic powers, and the evil powers, and, and that ultimately we're going to be delivered as a church.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, let, let me just finish the last verse here of Daniel 12, verse 13. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. This is not teaching soul sleep, the idea that your soul goes to sleep when you die and with your body, but no, our, our body rests, it sleeps in the dust, but our soul is alive, it goes to heaven, and one day at the end of days, our body will be resurrected. It's interesting how in Daniel, the final hope is not simply going to heaven when you die. The final hope is bodily resurrection, new creation when Christ returns. That, that's the final hope of the saints and where we're headed. Papa Fred, can you close us in prayer?
2: I will. Um, so Daniel is, dear Lord, Daniel has uh, has challenged us to persevere and, and to enter into this rest and and that we would be raised to a reward at the end of the day. And and it, it just reminds me of the words that Jesus gave, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the rest that I have prepared for you. And that's a glorious promise for Daniel, but even a, a, a glorious promise for all of us in this Room today as we finish this great book and, and I hope that it becomes reality in all of our lives by the uh, Holy Spirit and by the risen Christ and by the Lord God omnipotent and um, I look to him in prayer and, 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 and we're called to persevere, to fight, to, uh, to, uh, to um, endure this tribulation until he comes back and delivers us. Uh, thank you for today, thank you for the service, pray for the, uh, the sermon, the, the prayers, the music, uh, the, all the, the sound equipment, and uh, for the work that Ian does so well in his team. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen.